Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, how did Mark Twain, a.k.a. Samuel Clemens, use scrapbooks to fight unscrupulous publishers who reprinted his work without paying him? Why did celebrities like Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and Susan B. Anthony keep scrapbooks? How did abolitionists, suffragists, and African Americans use scrapbooks to tell their story? Before the era of Google and Instagram, how did Americans use scrapbooks to curate printed stories that contained information they wanted to save for the future? Our guest, Dr. Ellen Gruber Garvey, explores how Americans from all walks of life created scrapbooks to document, store, critique, and participate in a rapidly changing world of information overload. This episode was recorded as a lecture at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. You'll have to use your imagination a little to picture some of the types of scrapbooks that Dr. Garvey refers to, but you'll be fascinated by the impact scrapbooks had on American history. Welcome, Ellen. So I noticed that we're in a place with a lot of books. There are books out, and some of you probably have some with you, and they they might be in the form of Whatever their form they've taken now, they've, they were written with pens, with typewriters, with word processors. But what I'll be talking about now is, is books written with scissors. We hardly know about them anymore. But they reflect, and they are essentially scrapbooks, and, and they reflect various kinds of engagement with print culture. So I'll be talking about very diff- various different kinds of scrapbooks and weaving into that information about the kinds of scrapbooks that Stowe's circle and the people that she was that were important to her made and the ways that they used newspaper as data. First of all, we have just the one you're seeing now is the kind of scrapbooks that the children made. These were very popular in the 1880s. These are advertising trade cards. They're chromolithographed and Stowe and her sister wrote about chromolithography in their book on housekeeping on how to make a how to beautify your home better. They, ha- they recommended various kinds, specific chromolithographs they thought were particularly suitable for the home. But these, are, these small ones are not the kinds of things they were talking about, because the ones that went into picture frames were much larger in format. But children could get these for free for advertising cards, and, that, and color itself was very attractive. The fact that you could obtain f- color items for free was just wonderful. So they got them for free with as as ads handed out in the stores. So you can see there it's got, uh, it's a dyspepsia cure on the upper lower, the lower left and upper right. And the others, and there's another one that's for a store. And the association between the picture and the product was usually pretty flimsy, often non-existent. But the idea was that you would keep the card because it was pretty. And here we see that children are doing that. They're pasting down Pretty, pretty cards, pretty what's called colored scrap into their scrapbooks. Uh, scrap was something that cost, cost money, the, the stamped out, the out, outlines cut out, usually not just cards. So children understood that there was a value to what they were obtaining, that it was, you know, if, if they hadn't gotten it for free as an ad, they would have to pay for it. So they liked that. But that's children. And then we get on to plenty of other people making scrapbooks and doing things. But here's another use of scrapbooks 
That is, these are the equivalent of board books today. That is, the kid could chew on them and not destroy them. So parents made those for their children. They're picture books. They're made out of, on the right, you can see a piece from a seed catalog. They're made from magazines. And presumably somebody sat and narrated with the kid or, or not. And the child just went through and didn't, and either chewed on it or didn't. Also, you did not actually have, we'll get to this later, but you might also paste them, uh, not buy something or even make it, but rather paste them into an old catalog here or more trade cards. One of them, the second one down on the left there, I don't think that's one of hers, the James Kirk uh, card, but um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who is a grandniece of Harriet Beecher Stowe, an author in her own right, also made, uh, was an artist, and she made some money drawing trade, making the art for trade cards for that James Kirk soapworks. I don't think it's... It's possible that's one of hers, I'm not sure, but she, some of them are. So anyway, there's a variety of these kinds of pretty ones. And we can so see something of that going into a scrap. And then also, because people didn't have photos very much, they're of, they ordinarily would not have had um, uh, snapshots or pictures of kids and their family. They might use this as sort of, oh, that sort of looks like my brother to make scrapbooks. Uh, there's a very different scrapbook along those lines in the in the collection here by Stowe's daughter, who uh, Georgina, who made a scrapbook about her young son Freeman, and she had a lot of money, and so she has endless picture photographs of him. They're not snapshots; it's before snapshots. So she's got studio photos of what are called carte de visite photos, but that's rare, and most people couldn't afford that sort of thing. So. They might make a more improvised kind of work using mass-produced materials to speak of their own family situation. Same kind of thing. And then they valued these. You can see how much they valued them in that not only do they have a very beautiful cover there for this album, but in this case, there's a photograph of two young, young girls holding their album um, in a posed studio photo. These are not wealthy girls. You can tell that because... Costume people here, you will notice what do their clothing not? What does their clothing not have? It's a quiz, right? It also doesn't have buttons, so that's telling you something about how how poor they were. But they have this album, and they're showing it off because it's clearly their prized possession. So here, this gets us to this wonderful book in in the collection here, Hattie Stowe. So Hattie is the daughter of Harriet Beecher Stowe, one of the twin daughters. And although we just saw those children's scrapbooks, Hattie is in her 50s at the point that she's making this. So very different kind of scrapbook. She is using one of these elaborate albums, but she's pasted a picture, a nice picture of a tabby cat on the front. And then she's pasted all sorts of interesting things in here. She has a mix of newspaper clippings. We'll be talking more about newspaper clippings in a bit. In here, she's got some material that she's, obviously her mother has passed along to her. That's a letter her mother got from someone who read her article in Scribner's about their cat, Calvin. Now, why she named her cat after her husband, I do not know. Perhaps somebody does. But, of course, her, as you know in her novel, she always is repeating the same names over and over. The number of Georges in um, Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, is, is considerable. 
So here we have Cat Calvin. This woman says, your cat Calvin is just like my cat Silver. And he does these same things. In fact, he likes muskmelon and, you know, this and that. So she sends her this fan letter. And she also really loves the minister's wooing. And Hattie gets to paste it in her album with all of these other newspaper clippings. Each of them is about cats. So all things cat in her scrapbook. And she's got lots of other items. She's in, even got, and you can barely make it out, lower lower middle piece is um, a cat sitting on a chair, and it's a photograph. And again, this is unusual. This is the 1880s, moving into the 90s, and she's using an actual photograph, snapshot in her album at a time when those are harder to come by. And this is a page about her, about the, the Plymouth Church Sewing Circle's visit to Eunice uh, Beecher at Boscobel, um, which was the house in the cat skills that uh, th that uh, Henry built. It's very elaborate, as you can see, and it's, some, it's a place that Hattie had enjoyed visiting. So she's pasted in a letter about somebody visiting there. It's the only item in the scrapbook I saw that doesn't seem to directly refer to cats, but it does seem to have a picture, a picture of somebody I assume is the Beecher's cat. So she's drawing that connection. And then people gave her, so she also collected her greeting cards that had cat themes or cat pictures and, you know, have handwritten greetings on them. But keeping an album like this meant that people saw her, you know, she would show it. People would see, oh, you collect cat pictures. Okay. And then when they were sending her a card, they would send her yet another cat picture. So there's a circular quality to her scrapbook collecting. And, you know, think about, she's, she's saving all these cute cat pictures. It's not so different from all those cat videos on Facebook, you know, that cheer people up and um, cute cat pictures. So it's the same idea. And then here is her, now here's where we start to bring in the community. She's got a letter from Mark Twain after her mother has died. And he's in London. She's writing to him. She's written to him. We don't know exactly what she said, but... Presumably, she asked him for him to copy out a passage about, there's a famous passage about cats that you probably know from Puddinghead Wilson, if you're a cat fancier. And he's copied it out and he jokes about it. And she evidently sent him special paper to write it on. And he says, well, I spilled ink all over the paper. So just accept this paper. <laughs> now, whether he's making that up or he just can't be bothered, who knows. But he copies out the whole passage, which is something, this is, again, you can sort of see the interweaving of different traditions of scrapbook making. This is a kind of um, a kind of album making where people exchange things, exchange autographs. Authors very often were sent a request to copy out a passage or to just give their autograph. So he sometimes jokes about that. In other ways, he makes he types out his signature in one case in order to because he's so annoyed at constantly being asked, and also it's a good joke. Um, but here he does write out the passage for Hattie. And then we get on to, but we can see there's a souvenir element to that scrapbook. And we start to see these souvenir scrapbooks building up in the 80s and 90s as, as people, as young people go away to college. So they save souvenirs of, of college, of, of being away from home, of mar putting together their, their, their new life. Um, their life is very different and important to them, and they want to save that. So, But both men and women do this, and I think a lot of scrapbooks we think are 
only done by women, but that's not at all true. This young man made four massive scrapbooks in the Amherst College archives, um, William Belcher Whitney, and as you can see, he saved some objects that are almost that are 3D, and they wouldn't think of as going into a scrapbook, like sunglasses. Lecture tickets. Who knew you needed a, le a ticket to go to your classes? And he also, I love this one, he saved women's hairpins. Now, what I really want to know, and they're each labeled with the name and the date from the 1880s, what I really want to know is, did he ask for them, or did he steal them? So, we don't know. I mean, some of them are rather elaborate and expensive, one wonders. So, so those are kinds of things that we're more familiar with now. And they morph into these, there, there are a number of other things they kind of morph into. This is another uh, use of scrapbooks as a kind of play space, the scrapbook house, where you would create a whole house and your, each page would be a different room and you'd use, um, in this case, pictures from something like Sears catalog or various other books to to put the to furnish it or map catalogs or the other another thing that we're more familiar with now is is theater fans scrapbook um, there are massive collections of those uh, where where theater fans would just you know collect their favorite actors particular plays and so forth and those shift into movie star scrapbooks um, by the 1930s which are really primed by the movie studios that encourage people to do that. So here's Shirley Temple, who of course becomes a kind of minstrelsy figure in another world, and not in this case. She's here being told she has to lose weight at the age of three or four. Um, so um, scrapbooks embody a kind of history that we don't otherwise run into. And then we also see scrapbooks from political campaigns. This is Alice Dunbar Nelson, who is it's a complicated story, but you could say she was the widow of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and she, the African-American poet, and she was a writer and teacher and public speaker and a political organizer and somebody of phenomenal energy. One of the things she did, which is not so well known, is that in 1915, she campaigned for women's suffrage. She seems to have been paid to do it and took off time from her job and went around Pennsylvania uh, trying to persuade black, white, and mixed audiences, that is, men's, persuade the men to vote for women's suffrage, since women didn't get to vote on the question. And so she, this is the cover of her scrapbook, and she saved a, she has this one, and she did some very interesting kinds of um, PR shifting of her own persona. So this is from 1915, but the picture, her photo that she uses over and over in all of her press materials was taken in 1900. So if, you, if you've ever used an old photo in some of your materials, you know what we're talking about. Um, and, and then this is some, she collected all sorts of interesting, the scrapbook is a phenomenal document of all of the work she did because there's no other record of it, of her speeches, of her, how she was received. But even, you know, she didn't save the, the type, the scripts of her speeches. So the only record we have is these items that are not saved in any other, they're not digitized, they're not, elsewhere because they're from small town papers that aren't digitized and have no records, have no microfilms. So that's a special kind of thing. But again, we see these kinds of scrapbooks where people have documented something personal, but it's of tremendous political use and moment. And then we also have anti-suffragists campaigning. And this is another one. Uh, this is Ethel Leatherby's anti-suffrage campaign memorabilia scrapbook. She lectures and lies. You'll be shocked to hear that an anti-suffragist is lying. 
She's a sort of early, what shall we call her? I don't, well, she's, she's, a, she's a virulent right winger and she's always coming up with one set of nonsense or another, attacking women, attacking immigrants, attacking black people. And this is her scrapbook. This is, by the way, that's a fan. It doesn't have the handle, but you would fan yourself with it. So that's swag, anti-suffrage swag. So I've, I've laid out some of these people, but what I want to now turn to is newspaper clipping scrapbooks. You've seen a little bit of a sample of that in the, in the cat scrapbook, but the, the vast majority of the scrapbooks I've looked at, and I've looked at hundreds of them from the 19th century, are of newspaper clippings. This is a fi- essentially a filing system. I'll get to, back to that in a bit. And so you have basically public speakers and politicians like Abraham Lincoln made scrapbooks. This was a way that he could save a record of his speeches. I mean, we we famously think of the Gettysburg Address as written on the back of an envelope, but it's not just that he was short, it's not that he was short of paper, but he wrote, you know, he spoke extemporaneously. So how was he going to know what he said in a campaign speech? Well, the newspapers, somebody from a newspaper would take it down and he would then clip it so he would have a record of it a better record if it was from his side. And then he would also see what his opponent had said. So you can actually see these online at the Library of Congress. Um, Frederick Douglass made scrapbooks. And some of them, uh, I know that um, David Blight used some scrapbooks of his work in writing the new biography, and I haven't had a chance to really go through that yet. But he, some again, these are in the, some of these are on the Library of Congress. He's, some of them were burned in a fire, but you can get a sense of some of what was interesting and important to him and what he wanted to save a record of from looking at these. And I just, I'll, I'll, we'll get back to this later, but I just want to call attention, your attention on the right there, under the clipping, you can see there's other print. What do you think's going on there? Any idea? He's pasted it on top of another book. We'll get back to that in a bit. It's very typical. And then Mark Twain made scrapbooks and we'll get back to him. Actors made scrapbooks, again, because their work was ephemeral. So like Abraham Lincoln gave a speech, but actors perform and then that would vanish unless they saved that. If they were very prominent, then people would know about them. But they would bring their scrapbook out, their clipping book out, when they went to another town to say, you know, hire me here. Here's an example. Here, here are my reviews. Sarah Bernhardt made scrapbooks as well. Now, but I've been bringing up all these famous people just just because, you know, these to take advantage of your interest in celebrities. Because it's much more important that people in positions of powerlessness also used scrapbooks. It was a way that they could make a record of their own lives, but more important that they could sift and analyze and understand what they were reading in the press um, and recontextualize it and reuse it in different ways. Newspapers had become cheap. They were tantalizingly valuable. There just seemed to be an enormous amount of important things going by in the newspaper. And yet, what were you going to do with it? Save stacks of them in your house? You'd never find something again. Um, Newspapers were not indexed. Um, There might be a a private index kept by the newspaper itself, but there were no published indexes. If you wanted to find something again, you made a scrapbook. And so thousands and thousands of people did. And, and, And people were urged to make scrapbooks. So People of all races, class positions, ages made scrapbooks for their various uses. This is Gertrude Bustill Mussel, a journalist with the New York Freeman, who also worked in Philadelphia, and she advocated scrapbook making in her in her uh, columns. She praised scrapbooks as unwritten histories and said this was one way, especially for African Americans, to save history. 
And so I'm going to give an overview of some of these clipping scrapbooks, and then we'll see some different kinds. One major um, moment in scrapbook history is the Civil War. That is, it's a real watershed for scrapbook making. Everybody is reading the newspaper. They're desperate to find out what's going on. Um, you'll notice that news is coming from the front by telegraph. That's why, I mean, at the top of that headline is by telegraph. That's the most important thing. That is, it's fresh, up-to-the-minute news. You're going to find out what happened to your children, your sons. You're going to find out what happened to your best friend, your neighbor. And this is where you're going to find it. So everybody is desperate to read the newspaper. And they, they're rushing out at all hours to have it read to them. Everybody is doing that. You can see it's a very miscellaneous crowd. Um, there's a, what looks to be an Irish immigrant in the back with a funny hat. There's a pickpocket. There's a, you know, a woman in a, a sort of immigrant shawl kind of thing. And there's, uh, the, there's a man from the countryside. There's a black man in the back. There's a, everybody's there. And they all want to know what's, they want to see the up-to-the-minute news. And then... Having read the up-to-the-minute news, they also have a sense that they have lived through momentous events and they've gotten to know those events by reading the newspaper. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Maybe some of you remember, uh, say, did anybody save the newspaper after 9-11 um, or after the election of, of President Obama? Uh, and it's a funny thing there because the newspaper, many, news, many newspaper readers had shifted to digital means of reading the paper but the paper sold out, the paper paper, uh, because people wanted to have copies of the headline. So we start to see this kind of interest in saving the news, the sense of living through a momentous times that shows up in the Civil War. And here's where we get to some beach. Oh, and, and so people are, are finding their, in their daily lives, their ordinary personal lives, displaced by that. In this case, there's an amazing set of, of, di of diaries that turn into scrapbooks in the New York Historical Society of Edward Newfield Taylor. So the one on top is 1959, where he's just writing in everything by hand. But 1861 to 65, it's so fleshed out with clippings that it swells the binding and he can't, because it's just too much to, he can't just write all that stuff out by hand. He's pasting everything in. And then people are saving all sorts of things, poetry, what moved them at the time, lots of different things. The scrapbooks themselves become a kind of record. They become evidence of, in this case, lies being told. So this man is living, this is a, an account of someone living in the South, a Union sympathizer living in the South, who saves the news of the Confederate propaganda. And then he finds, you know, when they've announced that a battle has been won and things are going very well, then he finds the retraction two days later in, in very small type. And he saves that in this gigantic scrapbook. And what does he do with the scrapbook? He's living in Confederate territory during the Civil War. He hides it in his safe so he doesn't get lynched. But this idea of living through momentous times through the scrapbook and, and saving it through the scrapbook comes up in some of our Beecher friends and Stowe friends. So the Beecher-Tilton scandal... Everybody know what that is? Or no. Okay. So, yes. Okay. So, um, Henry Ward Beecher was accused of, on fairly good evidence, of having, having a, uh, an affair with one of his, his parishioners, Elizabeth Tilton. And 
It's a long, drawn-out story that you can follow in the wonderful book by Debbie, Debbie Applegate, called The Most Famous Man in America. And he, he was sued by Tilton, his former protege, and he was also, you know, suspended from his... The question was whether he could, could stay in the pulpit having... He was, he was a tremendously popular preacher in Brooklyn at the Plymouth Church there. And, you know, after these accusations, after back and forth claims, counterclaims and so forth, could he continue to be a minister? Well, that was a real issue. Um, and it was a tremendous... It gripped the nation, basically, and certainly gripped everybody in Brooklyn. And this is a, a, news, a newspaper clipping scrapbook made by Dr. Henry Minton. Um, and he preserved... He, he, he was a, doc, a homeopathic doctor in Brooklyn and a parishioner of, of, of Beecher's, and I think an admirer of him. And he preserved lots of clippings that had to do with the scandal. It was important to him. Um, and we see this elsewhere. I mean, the, the, the church itself had institutional scrapbooks, which I haven't gone into. Um, but we also see Beecher's death, which was a tremendous event also for the nation, not just for Brooklyn. The it was a day of national. It was a day of mourning. The flags were at half staff. Places were all closed down, and uh, the Reverend George Spalding, who was in New Hampshire and then later in Syracuse, who had been on the committee of the, the Congregational Committee that the Congregational Churches that cleared Beecher and reinstated him in fully in his pulpit, made a scrapbook about Beecher's death. And he was prompted to do that, in a sense, by the newspaper. The Brooklyn Eagle, which was the, the largest newspaper in Brooklyn, and of course Brooklyn was its own city at the time, set up a whole recap of all the events of his death. And uh, you could include and, and, and set out, you can, I'm sorry, you could read that. It says something like, um, the following pages are mostly a retelling in serial order of the contents of of the Eagle newspaper over the last few days while Beecher was dying. So they're assuming you really, it's like a serial and you want to follow it. So they want to make sure you have every juicy bit of what one person, one writer called the wealth of Beecherina, which has been published in the last few weeks. So Spalding is all for it. He's got lots of Beecherina. And here's this lovely thing showing you the layout of the room where Beecher died. Um, because, of course, you want to know that, right? There's the bed, there's, you know, there's the desk, the whole thing. Um, so, and it's got state legislature, leg, state legislators' um, resolutions in his memory, an article about his library, all sorts of things. And we go back to this one. There we get to see Bosco Bell again, the same. It's a slightly different version of the picture that, uh, that his niece saved, but same idea. These were public pieces in the newspaper. It wasn't that she had a personal photograph of it, you could just go find that. He was a big he was a big deal. So the wealth of Beecherina also is properly saved here in a special scrapbook. Now what is that special scrapbook? It is a Mark Twain scrapbook. Now was uh, Spal Reverend Spaulding, was he doing a sort of six degrees of separation saying, oh I know that Mark Twain has something to do with the Beecher fa Stowe family, or did it was it just that this was an important enough work that it was worth buying a special scrapbook for. I, I like either story perfect. They both work. Um, now we'll get to what the Mark Twain scrapbook was. 
So you can see, I don't know if you could make that out, but it's a special label that says patented uh, by Mark Twain and trademarked. And this was his invention. So Twain was a scrapbook user himself. And of course, Twain lived down the road here, so down, the, down the path. So we bring him in as one of Stowe's friends. How many people here used Google Docs or Dropbox or something along those lines? Okay, so then you have the idea of what cloud storage is, right? You have something on your computer, but you can send it to be held somewhere else. Remote document storage. And that's what Twain did in 1867. He didn't use Dropbox, but he went on the, a trip to the Middle East with a group of pious Protestants, and he wrote articles about the trip. He, they, he published them in the Alta California, but instead of using this very awkward, the only thing he could have copied them with was this extremely awkward copying press that would have had a, a bunch of different steps for, that you had to use special paper, special ink, and this and that. Instead, he just sent off his articles to the Alta California and his sister subscribed to it. So his sister, so the, the, the article goes from his pen to the Alta California, his sister gets it in Missouri, sticks it in her scrapbook. When he's home, she get, he gets the scrapbook back with all of his columns that he wrote. And mm -hmm. then he can rewrite them and re-edit them, and they turn into Innocence Abroad. So it allowed him to retrieve and revise. Now, some people would have used scrapbooks like this. We saw one of those for the cat scrapbooks. Um, but... I want to look at why Mark Twain would have been interested in inventing a scrapbook as he did. Now, he was plagued by uh, having his work stolen from him, pirated. Um, you can see that it was very easy for publishers to do this. The copyright was not very effective, and he put out a, a collection of sketches and the, with a, a subscription publisher where he got paid for it, and then, boom, Belford and Company, which was sort of a notorious sticky-fingered pirate, republished virtually the same collection and didn't pay him with almost the same cover. So this was infuriating. He also, and this was more common, in the newspapers themselves, would did what they called um, exchanges. That is, you, if you wrote a piece for the newspaper, you might very often find that it had made its way to another newspaper. It might not be credited to you, it might just be credited to the other newspaper. Now that happened with Twain, or he was—he could see that it was happening to people, and he came up with a really smart angle to keep that from happening. The first time he started, almost immediately on starting to use his pen name, Mark Twain, he put a character named Mark Twain in the story, who is addressed, hey Mark, you're looking great. And so you couldn't very well leave his name off the story even if you didn't, you didn't pay him for it. But still, as it made its way around, it had his name connected. And that helped him to be successful. But it was still infuriating that his work got reused and un not credited. So his scrapbook, oddly enough, was another method for helping that, for changing that. Okay, so we've seen that he already uses scrapbooks, and he invents a scrapbook that has... Um, it's pre-gummed, so each of those little blocks in the picture is stick is is um, gum that you would wet with a sponge and then slap down a clipping, so like old postage stamps, and that meant it was quite portable. You didn't have to get the glue pot out. You didn't have to do all the annoying things that you would otherwise have to do. 
He also referred to it as being published as opposed to uh, just printed or produced. And his uh, John, Daniel Sloat, who he later then argued with and fought with about money, refers, it refers to this, him as, uh, the scrapbook as being published by Daniel Sloat and company and then recommends this. And now what happens with this recirculation of absolutely everything he writes? Well, here's his before and after advertisement for his scrapbook. His domestic life is tremendously improved with Mark Twain's self-pasting scrapbook. We can see in the first one the difficulties of the old-style scrapbook. There are barrels of profanity rolling out, as well as chaos and mess, stabbing himself in the in the tails of his coat with his scissors, the cat has gotten into the glue, the child is knocking over the chair, everything is going wrong because of the old-style scrapbook with the glue. But domestic tranquility is restored with the new style of scrapbook, where all you have to do is clip things and tidily paste them down with paterfamilias in charge here. And so there's this jokiness of the pictures, but when you get into the text, it really goes to town. So he, he proclaims it, he, the ad itself uh, that was in the original piece there is, my dear Mr. Sloat, I have invented and patented a new scrapbook. So it's Twain writing to his printer. Um, and he says, you know, all these wonderful things about it in this sort of jokey style. And editors started picking that up and joking with it. So it says, no library is complete without a copy of the Bible, Shakespeare, and Mark Twain's scrapbook. It saves sticky fingers and ruffled pictures and scraps. It's capital investment. It's a valuable book for purifying the domestic atmosphere and contains nothing that the most fastidious person could object to and is, to be frank and manly, the best thing of any age, mucilage particularly says the Norristown Herald. So everybody, all these editors want to sort of vie with each other to joke, to pun, to come up with different angles to make it funny. But what he figured out was that once he got them all going, he got a lot of free publicity out of it. Ordinarily, they would reprint his stuff and not, you know, maybe they would credit him, but they wouldn't pay him and it wouldn't do him any good that they were reprinting it. Now it did him wonderful, wonderfully well that they were reprinting everything about his scrapbook. And he made, according to some accounts, he made more money from the scrapbook than he did from some of the written books that he published. So we can say that he finally got some benefit from, from his scrapbook. And we can see that from, from, his re, from all that reprinting. And in that case, perhaps it did save from, it save on profanity, um, his profanity anyway. So then, and some of the, the covers, most of them are, are just kind of, you know, ornamental, but a few of them have specific references to Twain in them, as in this one, which has a frog, uh, refer, as a reference to the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County, which was a popular, one of his, his most popular early stories. Um, and then again, this, this sort of speaks to your question about whose scrapbook is it? Here it says Mark Twain's scrapbook, as though it belongs to Twain. This is my favorite, um, is his little cherub helpfully holding aloft a Mark Twain scrapbook while kicking over the glue pot. You can't see it terribly well here. Let me find you. There, that's a better oh, yeah. one. And uh, so he's sort of a helpful puto. And then here he is again uh, in another version of him on the interior. He looks 
a little more like or here where the the little cherub is holding the holding the scissors as well and netting he's got a net to gather in all these materials and then the idea of the author's scrapbook sort of ret- returns to Twain's own use of it for collecting his clippings to then use in to reuse and we can see that in at least one scrapbook in the collection here where uh, Harriet's uh, grandniece, Lucy Adams Perkins, used a scrapbook that could only accommodate a single column of type to save her collect, coll- collect her clippings that she wrote in the Hartford Courant on a, her trip to Hawaii um, in 1902. I don't know if she reprinted them anywhere, but it was a nice way, it was an easy way to save it. It's just one clipping, one column per page. I didn't, I don't have a picture of that. But other people didn't do that. Um, they didn't in- invest, they didn't spend the extra money to buy a scrapbook because it was very, it was free to do it a different way. And that was to reuse an old book. They would often, as you saw in some of the other, in the, the Frederick Douglass's book, but you could have seen it, we can see it in some others um, as well. Excuse me. This one is, a le- and ledgers were also very commonly reused. In this case, we have a list of Union soldiers given transport. So that was from 1863. And then a decade later, it's reused to save poetry and other other works. So that meant it was a really, as you might say, a democratic practice. You could use all sorts of things for it. A very popular thing uh, item to use for it was the agricultural reports and the patent office reports and the um, different government reports that were becoming a larger and larger government industry. You would get them for free from your congressman and different people writing on the on how to make scrapbooks suggest this is perfect look you can hold two columns of type very nicely and you can say in this way that the government subsidized scrapbook making by giving these out so the first and yeah and they look very nice on the bookshelf they're very substantial they're uh, sometimes people would cut out the intervening they sometimes cut out papers, pages so it doesn't bulk up too much the way that you saw with the, the Civil War scrapbook. The first of these scrapbooks that I came across was, was this, Saints Everlasting Rest by Richard Baxter, who was a, a Protestant chaplain in England. And this was a very popular book that made its way around the, the various tract societies. Um, nice looking book. And I, Happened to be in a, a newspaper, a, um, a used bookstore, and somebody knew I was interested in scrapbooks and handed this to me and said, I don't know, you know, what is this? Why am I looking at a Puri- book of Puritan sermons? Very likely, you know, uh, Lyman, Ab- Lyman Beecher would have used it, and probably, certainly, uh, Henry Ward Beecher would have been very familiar with it. And what was inside it when I opened it up was The Revolt of Mother by Mary Wilkins Freeman. So the generation after it had been given as a gift from one sister to another, someone else in the 1880s had covered it over with stories that were mainly about the virtue, about, about domesticity and um, making home happy and improving, improving things at home. Um, and I could see more about how you could possibly read The Revolt of Mother that way, but uh, let me jump on that one, jump from that one. But these newspaper clipping scrapbooks were, in a sense, simply filing systems. And scrapbooks, newspaper collections, library cataloging systems, filing systems, and even pigeonhole desks embody some overlapping modes of thinking about information. So thinking about how to concentrate it, 
how to find it again. And each of those modes understands that pieces of information, whether they're in the form of articles, books, or snippets, are detachable. They're movable. You, they're classifiable under multiple headings. And that's a kind of crucial idea that we are very familiar with now. Um, Jeffrey Nunberg has a, a lovely term saying that they can be morselized. They can be clipped out, extracted, and moved to some other use that they weren't initially intended for. They can be detached. And, and they, that's picked up speed now as we had incessantly detach things and move them around and um, filter or, or, as we sometimes say, curate information. Um, so we've seen that the scrap, these clipping scrapbooks were made up of, of um, newspapers, but I want to reach back to a more basic issue of just what is a newspaper. Is it a material object of paper and print with the items frozen in place, or is that material quality of being on paper, is that just incidental? Is it just a medium for temporarily holding the article, or is it... Is, is it something else? So from 19th century, mid-19th century Americans, newspapers were primarily paper and ink, and it was very hard for people to think of them in different ways. It was just stuff that piled up, um, that you repurposed as trunk linings, or you pulped to make paper mache or more paper. In the 19th century, though, we can start to see readers beginning to understand newspapers as extractable sources of morselized data. And that sounds, that's a mouthful, let me get to it in a bit. Um, and we can see this in the glimmering in the work of, of two sisters from a slaveholding family in South Carolina um, who became abolitionist speakers and writers. Sarah and Angelina Grimke and Angelina's husband, Theodore Weld, wrote a tremendously important book called American Slavery as It Is, Testimony of a Thousand Witnesses. Now, so in the 1830s, they made a huge leap. They parted ways with the usual approach to abolitionist persuasion, which was to find the right biblical passages and show people why that said slavery was wrong. And instead, they set out to use facts about the conditions of slaves to persuade white people of the horrors of slavery. And they realized that the words that had most authority for doing this were the words of the slaveholders themselves. And so they amassed thousands of copies of Southern newspapers, and they looked through them for this information. Now, abolitionist newspapers had reprinted runaway slave ads before, just to say, horrible, 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 turning the slaveholder's voice against himself. But the Grimkes and Weld realized that they could treat the ads as data and the marks, the scars, and shackles that the slaveholders noticed, noted as, in order, as a way of identifying individual runaways then became an incremental kind of uh, indictment of slavery that could be systematically collected and analyzed. Uh, and then they published that in American Slavery as it is. They mined the ads for information that they sorted into categories, so you could then look them up in the table of contents and in the index under tortures by iron collars, chains, fetters, handcuffs, etc. Brandings, maimings, gunshot wound, wounds, etc. And mutilation of teeth. So they took this undifferentiated pile of ads and said, oh, this is evidence. And in the, in the ads, the dates and places had been of primary importance, but they shifted that. So if you look at one of the actual ads that you can find, because they do credit them, 
It's very hard to find these newspapers, but if you look at the actual ads, they look completely different because the Grimkes and Wells have stripped all of the identifying information. They don't want the ads to be reused to ever find anyone, so they don't say where and they don't say... They, t then they, they, t they take it out. So it's, you still have the data, but you can't use it to ever search for this runaway. Um, and then they interpret the data so that what might be a simple, because if you just read it, you think, oh, well, somebody lost a tooth. You know, it's an era. Yeah, nobody's got good dentists. Why would that be surprising? But then the Grimkeys, because they, live, they lived in a slaveholding family, they know what that's about. And they know it's about a scheme to identify slaves by, by yanking a tooth and, and making that person more identifiable. So then they explain that in the book to show you that. So the ads are, um, and so they're, they're sort of like, you know, present day academic researchers who pick through databases for particular uses of words or authors' names, but they have a mission. They have a real purpose here. And they realize they can remake them in different ways. And it was a hugely influential book. So it was not only, not only did Harriet Beecher Stowe say that she slept with it under her pillow while riding Uncle Tom's cabin because it gathered the documented, vivid, horrifying incidents that she could draw on in writing the novel, but then she turned to it again for, uh, as a source for a key to Uncle Tom's cabin where things are much more laid out and identified for, as where they came from. Other abolitionists made scrapbooks to track what was going on. Lewis Tappan, for example, he ba who bankrolled many abolitionist endeavors. In his scrapbook, he has a letter from um, Harriet J Jacobs, uh, an early version of Incidents in the Life of the Slave Girl. So he saved that. So you find all sorts of abolitionist history in this. Um, and after the Civil War, many African Americans continued to make scrapbooks too, and people who had been whites who had been abolitionists as well. Um, and in my research, I discovered several African American men, particularly who were prodigious makers of scrapbooks in the late 19th and early 20th century. One of them was William Henry Dorsey, who made 400 scrapbooks in Philadelphia. Um, and there are several others, and I'm going to skip over them. But Dorsey is particularly notable because not only did he make all 400 scrapbooks and uh, allowed people to come and to his house, which he called Dorsey's Museum, and they could look at scrapbooks and the other things that he collected, paintings and books, and read them and use them there. And they were this... W.E.B. Du Bois drew on his work for writing the, the Philadelphia Negro, and so did, more recently, Roger Lane, his um, amazing book, William Dorsey's Philadelphia and Hours, also makes use of the scrapbooks. And one of his scrapbooks was on Harriet Beecher Stowe. It's mostly from 1889 to 98, and it uses the outpouring of articles about her on her 84th birthday and then on her death. Um, the literary scholar Barbara Hockman points out that although the items often duplicate ones that appear in the scrapbook that probably was made by Harriet's son, Charles, that covers roughly the same period that's in the Schlesinger, Dorsey reflects a very different reading of both Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, one that reads, for example, George Harris, um, the one of the characters in Uncle Tom's Cabin, as the hero, not Tom. So that doesn't show up elsewhere. He found the clippings that make that point. And he includes also clippings that acknowledge white Southern hatred of Stowe that don't show up in Charles Stowe's scrapbook. So 
other black scrapbooks made other black scrapbook makers made used presented mixed material documenting their own lives, but also in relation to the different issues going on in terms of black life at the time, particularly lynchings. Now, we don't know whether some of those scrapbook makers shared their, their materials, but we know that Dorsey shared his in, his in his library. He was very well aware of his work as part of creating history, and he helped to found the American Negro Historical Society, which we, he was in charge of their collection. That's why he's He's the custodian. That doesn't mean he pushed a broom. That means he was in charge of, he had custody of. So I'm going to stop there to have time for questions, but I just want to sort of, you know, there are a lot of different issues of scrapbook making. Some of them touch on how people amassed information and remade it to create works like American Slavery as it is. Some of them created histories for their communities, as Dorsey did and some of his other Philadelphia friends like William W.H. Cathcart, who also made 150 volumes of scrapbooks. Um, and other people indulged their hobbies or their, their pleasure in cats or their desire to save information about a trip they took or the writings, their writings and making, making those writings more usable in an era when you couldn't make easily make copies. Um, so they're to, they are writers' tools, they are community histories, they are a variety of other things that we don't usually now associate with scrapbooks. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank our guest, Dr. Ellen Gruber-Garvey, professor of English at New Jersey City University and the host for the lecture, the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. Read more in Dr. Garvey's book, Writing with Scissors, American Scrapbooks from the Civil War to the Harlem Renaissance, published by Oxford University Press. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. Subscribe to Connecticut Explored and get the upcoming winter issue with stories about events or inventions that disrupted history. Subscribe, buy back issues and collections, including a make-your-own collection at a special price at ctexplored.org.